Hey, this is Rob Hunt coming to you from sunny Southern California, uh, from Linnea Holdings, joined as always in the Dented Canvas show by my co-host and fearless leader, Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law. How's it going, Larry? Rob, I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today. You've uh, selected an excellent show for us to listen to. And uh, coming on the heels of the Benzinga Conference in Chicago, there's more than a few topics of cannabis to discuss. Yeah, there definitely are. I think we have a lot of fun stuff to talk about today. And the show I selected today happens to be the first Grateful Dead show I ever saw. So I'm pretty fired up to share this one with everyone else. It's from uh, Madison Square Garden on September 20th, 1988. Uh, during the first run that the Grateful Dead ever did, I think nine shows of the garden. I think they added a 10th of this run, uh, which is the rainforest benefit at the end. But I was a 16-year-old kid living about half an hour from the city. It was the first time that I got a chance to jump on the train and sneak down to uh, to New York and, uh, and go catch the Grateful Dead for my first time. So every single song I saw that night was the first time I ever got to see them play it. I opened up with the great Jack Straw Althea. Um, but as they kicked into it, you know, there's a bunch of tunes that became longtime favorites of mine over the years, starting off with the first one I think we're going to listen to. That's, uh, that's the Peggyo, which I'd never heard Peggyo, even with all the tapes I collected. I don't think I'd ever heard Peggyo on tape before I saw it live the first time. Uh, I heard it this night and, uh, became, you know, a lifelong favorite of mine, you know, from that moment forward. So, Dan, maybe you queue up just a, uh, a touch of the Peggyo for us to check out. Sweet William, he is dead, pretty Peggyo. Sweet William, he is dead, pretty Peggyo. Sweet William, he is dead, and he died for me. And he's buried in the Louisiana country. So I'm pretty sure I know that that's one of your favorites as well, uh, Larry. But you know, for me, Peggy, I love the uh, I love the fact it's it's eight verses. I love that's four verses, then a jam, then four verses. I love the uh, the way that Garcia pronounces certain words like Louisiana in the song. I love how it sort of progresses in, in such a um, in sort of a Jackaro fashion as well, of just telling the story of you know going to war and coming back from war and trying to you know earn your spoils and earn the girl tragedy in it, but also like you know elation in it. But it's uh, it, it's it's kind of like one of those great almost old English roguish tunes, don't you think? You know, it, it really is. It, it was always an interesting tune uh, that I liked from the very first time I ever heard it because it was. It, it may have been one of the first tunes I heard them play that was just, you know, completely different style altogether. I, I was always fascinated by the story, you know, would always try to follow along with it when Jerry sang it. And, you know, it was one of those that went slow enough where you could, you, you could actually pick it up. And um, it was fun. You know, it was, it was always a, uh, a first set tune. And one that when they played, uh, you know, we were happy to hear. And it was almost kind of nice because you could just kind of slow down from all the dancing for a minute and sway and hear Jerry tell this story. But just doing 30 seconds of research on it, you know, it turns out that the dead played it almost uh, 300 times, about 275 times. And they really, you know, the, the, the articles on it talk about how Jerry and the dead, you know, kind of took this song 
and made it their own. It was, I guess it's a traditional Irish ballad originally called the Bonnie Lass of, maybe you can pronounce it, F-Y-V-I-E. Frenario. No, the, this is the Bonnie Lass of Fivy, Fivey. Oh, really? It's like Brett, Brett Favre. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, and it was sung originally by an Irish folk group called the Quarries. And then in, in the annotated Grateful Dead, I don't know if you've, if you've ever read that by uh, David Dodd, which is fantastic to dig into all of this stuff. Uh, he talks about Fenario, which is where the song supposedly takes place and says that there is no such place. But he does a little linguistic work on it and says that Fen is the British word for a flat, muddy land around the Cambridgeshire area, you know, which might have been the part of the country where soldiers were marching off to war kind of thing. So, you know, if you want to take 30 seconds and dig into it, Jerry really tapped into some heavy stuff there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so it's meeting the girl, not being good enough for the girl, telling the parents I'm, I'm going to be good enough someday if I go out there and earn my own as a soldier and becoming a very successful soldier only to come back and, you know, die anyway. So it's, uh, you know, a, a bit of, as I said, a bit of a struggle, a bit of tragedy in the end. But yeah, I mean, for, in terms of Fenario, obviously it makes a, uh, it makes another appearance in Dire Wolf as well. So there's obviously some sort of affiliation or some sort of uh, like, uh, love of, of Fenario uh, with the Grateful Dead. So, you know, it's one of those great fictitious places that I always look at. What, what's the other one that's um, uh, Deep Elm? Right. You know, Deep, Deep Elm's another spot that's kind of like could, could be anywhere. Absolutely. And, and they do. You know, if, if you really listen to the lyrics of Peggy, though, you know, these days it might be called stalking, right? I mean, ah. if ever I return your cities, I will burn. Yeah. You know, you better you better tell me you love me or there's going to be trouble around here. So, I'm, you know, look, it's it's a great tune and I loved it when Jerry played. But if you really stop and think it through for a minute, he's not being so nice about it. Yeah, this is one for Stu. You know, Stu, Stu would come on here and deconstruct it for us. <laughs> Dell's. Tell us why you know you can't play this in front of the ladies because uh, you know it's, there's all sorts of misogyny that's involved in this tune. So, you know, I, I just like to look at, as you said, a great Irish ballad. You know, as I said, in, in many ways, kind of has that same Jack Rowe feeling to it of, of you know going out, going to war, coming back from war, and uh, you know, kind of everything that happens in between, and, and even like a little bit of a terrapin. You know, kind of the way the ter terrapin like story begins as well. Right. Well, and I mean, even a tune like Stagger Lee, right, is a is kind of a story tune that they would play and. Although I don't know that we know where Stagger Lee takes place. Yeah, I mean, depending on who you speak to, all the, everyone in the Caribbean claims it as their own. You, know, you talk to a guy in the Bahamas, they'll say it's a Bahamian tune. You talk to someone in Antigua, they'll tell you it's an Antiguan tune. Jamaicans will tell you it's their tune. So I mean, somewhere, some sort of Creole, you know, port town in the uh, in the islands is, is always kind of where I thought Stagger Lee was from. But Stagger Lee seems to have a lot of people that think it's theirs. I hear you. Okay. Okay. So, so Larry, we got to hang out this week, man. I got to come to your hometown and kick it with you for a few days and uh, do a bunch of fun stuff. We we hit the uh, the show together. We went and saw some music, had some dinner and drinks. Yeah, I'm going to rope Dan Humiston into this part of the conversation as well because it's the first time that you, me, and Dan, since we've been doing the show together, have gotten a chance to uh, to go out and see some music together. Absolutely, and it was really a lot of fun. Um, again, you know, for the Benzinga conference, uh, Dan was in doing his whole uh, media thing and doing it very well. Uh, Rob was in doing his whole business thing and doing it very well. And I was just running around and, you know, trying to look at faces of people I knew. But I got to hang out with these guys, uh, you know, before and after, and we really had a good time, especially Tuesday night when they were more than kind to treat me to a lovely dinner. Um, and uh, then we went and we did see some great music and uh, very consistent with this show. It was a uh, band called Jazz is Fish. And since you and I are, are, are the bigger fish heads in the crowd, uh, let's see what Dan thought of it. Oh, I appreciate you guys asking my opinion on this because normally I don't get a chance to talk. It was really fun. The um, 
I, I, I really I like the first song that they said that they that we heard. Um, I can't remember. I don't I don't know what fish song that was, but that sax player was just he was just going. That was a great show. And that venue we were at was great, too. Just a lot of fun. Yep. A lot of fun. City Winery in uh, Chicago. There is a uh, a place that's really come around. I think they have them in more than just Chicago, but definitely in Chicago. Uh, they've brought in a number of good groups, and it's kind of a, uh, a community eating area with a stage up in the front. And everybody sits in their tables and kind of turns a little bit to the right or left and sees some really, really great music that they bring into town. And it was, it was fun to get to go there and see that band. Yeah, I think the only mistake we made is, you know, going out to a really nice dinner before that and getting to the show so late that we only caught the, uh, the last couple of tunes. So it was pretty funny as we were walking in. Uh, Larry looks at me and said, you know, it's the, the most expensive bathtub gin I'll ever see. So I think we just paid for tickets as we went in and caught, caught the last song of the second set, which or I assume was the second set, which is Bathtub Gin. And then they fortunately came back out and played a moment dance afterwards. But uh, but a really, really unique take on a lot of fish tunes. I wish we'd seen more of the show, but uh, the, that was the bad news. The good news is because we were so late, they walked us in and basically stuck us on the table in the front row and, uh, you know, got to see the uh, got to see these guys play up close. And it was a really, it was a five-piece band, I think. Um, and, you know, sax player, keyboard player, bass, guitar, and drums. It was. And as a guy who's seen fish a number of times, you, I'm talking about Rob, uh, you've seen them before with with brass instruments playing with them. We talked about that because, I mean, otherwise, take out the saxophone player and it's an exact fish lineup, a guitar player, a bass player, a drummer, and a keyboard player, and they were great. But it's like here in Brantford, play the sax on Eyes of the World with the Dead. It just takes the music to a whole nother level. I, I just thought of it as fish plus a saxophone, and I thought it was great. Yeah, me, me too. And it, the thing that was super cool about it is I think the sax player couldn't have been more than like 19 or 20 years old, and that kid could blow. He was a, he was a good player. And it's really nice to see a band that was actually fronted by, by a drummer. I mean, Joe Russo's Almost Dead obviously has that. You've got a few bands where the, the drummer's <clears throat> kind of the lead person in the band, but it's it's not too often, you know, like, like Phil Collins, some other random ones, you know, that, that had it where the drummer was leading. But, uh, but this guy was definitely holding it and definitely uh, obviously making the song selections and choosing who the band was. And he brought some really, you know, fun, talented musicians that obviously, uh, you know, love uh, playing the music of Fish. But I thought what was really cool about the band, and I love plugging bands I haven't seen before. The thing that was really cool is when he was talking about each of the musicians, it sounded like a couple of them really didn't know Fish until he turned them on to it and just said, hey, you're a great musician. I want you to get to know this music and uh, and see how you can interpret it. And, you know, these guys just jumped right in and, and found their groove with it. So it was, uh, it was fun to see some talented musicians were kind of handpicked by someone else. Go, you know, I'm sure they all gig with other bands as well. But, you know, come out on the road with me and let's play 20 Dates or whatever it is. And, you know, uh, let's go cruise around. But it looks like it's kind of a revolving cast of characters that he has in that band, depending on the tour. But what I was going to say, you're talking, and he did make a point of saying that some of these musicians he brought in, he specifically brought them in because they were not familiar with fish music and he wanted to see what would happen. Is that any different from the dad having Brantford walk up on stage, really? And you can hear when he plays that Eyes of the World, the first two minutes, he's just kind of tooting along for a second. And then after a minute, he picks it up and he runs wild with it. Yeah, and I think that's why jazz musicians in general are so good because, you know, whenever I think of a great jazz musician, they're, they're great players, but they're better listeners, right? And when you think about, you know, they, they listen first and they interpret, they figure out where the groove is and they say, okay, what's, you know, how am I going to layer onto this? And that's something that Brantford did so well. And he did it by the bird song that, you know, on 32990. He was already in it by bird song to the point that I think they said, all right, come back out and play the second set with us because you, you listened so well. And so, yeah, these, these cats were, uh, they were all good. And so I liked it enough that at the end, it turned out it was one of the, uh, I think it was the bass player's 26th birthday. 
And uh, shout out to my boys over at uh, Toast who make some great pre-rolls in a couple different markets, in the Massachusetts market and a few others as well. But uh, I'd seen my buddies from Toast. They'd handed me a five-pack of joints earlier in the day and decided to pay it forward and wish a happy birthday to uh, the bass player and made sure that every member of the band had a nice uh, big fat joint to smoke afterwards. So uh, thank you to my friends at Toast for hooking me up and uh, know that all those joints went to a good place. And that's true. And and along that same line, uh, shout out to Diane Downing, who uh, have such good stuff. And uh, once again, were able to set me up with uh, uh, the best joints in the business, pre-rolls, because they don't canoe. You know, whatever they do, they make them in a good way. They don't canoe. They're wonderful. So big shout out to her. And if you're ever up in Oregon State, check them out. They're awesome. So yeah, that was a, that was a fun night. And the uh, the conference was a fun conference. It was a, a lot different than a lot of the campus conferences you and I attend. In so much as much more of a business conference. And I know that, you know, your daughter was there with her, or Dan's daughter was there with her business. And, you know, I was there with, a, with several different businesses. I was there with Forefront, but I was also there with uh, the guys from New Dia in, uh, in Massachusetts and, you know, a few other, uh, a few other clients. Uh, that we're all attending as well. So super cool, but it was really a business-oriented um, conference with a lot of bankers and a lot of uh, a lot of big law firms. But uh, you know, the prevailing prevailing theme, you know, much to sort of speak to what we've been saying previously, is just how many companies right now are struggling out there and uh, trying to figure out what their path forward is. So I think the um, the term I heard, and I'm going to give credit where it's due to uh, to Jessica Billingsley from McKerna. And I said, Jessica, you know. How's it going these days? And she looks at me and she goes, "Well, you know, surviving is the new winning, Rob." And that was a mantra I heard I heard consistently through uh, through the week. Is a lot of people were saying, like, you know, if we can get through this year, then you know, there's a lot of blue sky ahead. But there's a you know, there's a fair amount of carnage that's out there right now, and people trying to figure out what their path forward is, or if there is a path forward, and a lot of other people trying to figure out if they've got you know capital, how they can actually go out there and scoop up some good assets and, and integrate them into their businesses. So there's there's a lot of M and A, but not big M and A. It's much different play than it used to be. It used to be you know, people doing eighty twenty deals, where twenty percent was cash and eighty percent was stock. Now it's uh, you know mostly just stock deals and saying, hey, you know your choices are potentially dying out or uh, being integrated in, and we can give you a new lease on life. But there's not going to be any um, not any, not any money put in your pocket, and that's especially interesting. And you can speak to this more in the Illinois market because there's all these new licenses have been granted that if they're not actually open in 12 months, they sunset. And there's a lot of horse trading I heard of people trying to get rid of licenses in, in Illinois and really not that many buyers because most of the big MSOs already are capped out at 10 and they've already got their 10. So there aren't that many suitors that have you know, real capital to put into these things. So it's a, it, it, it's a tough market. Is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, well, you know, we've talked about it. And you know, I, going to the conference for me was positive because I needed to be around positive cannabis people. And in that conference, everybody was, you know, cutting a deal and everybody was angling to cut a deal. And, you know, even if 90% of those deals never happen, just the energy of everybody being back and face to face and, you know, getting to have those conversations, I thought was very, very positive. And I really liked that. I saw a lot of people I hadn't seen in a long time. Uh, some people who I see all the time, but it was just nice to see them in that context again. And, uh, you know, in that respect, I think it was very productive. And, and I always enjoy going to those and, and meeting up with people because those are where the, the ultimately the underlying networks that funnel business to me and to everybody are formed and, and refined and really worked on. But at the same time, I know a lot more about the market and what's going on than I did even a few years ago when I was going to MJ Biz feeling like I, you know, thought I was really really on top of the world. But back then when I was feeling that, I was feeling this overarching sense of optimism. 
And now I don't want to say it's an arching sense of pessimism, but it's not an arching sense of optimism. And that puts me somewhere in the middle. And I think that this conference, to some degree, kind of symbolizes that because there's many, many people there who are turning up there because they have nowhere else to turn. This is their do or die. Either I'm going to get some money and I'm going to be able to make this happen or I'm not. And, you know, there's a lot of them that come away from there, unfortunately, you know, for every one that finds their their uh, their backer or their angel, there's probably a hundred that walk away disappointed that they still couldn't get their ideas sold. And that's just the reality of the market, right? I mean, any industry can be like that. But I think one of the themes that you and I have touched on a little bit, you know, and especially in a state like Illinois, just because I'm here and I see it happening, is that we went from what was supposed to be a very open um, uh, equitable, uh, minority friendly and, and, and diversity forward type of program. And we don't have that. And we have a program that's, that's dominated by MSOs and will be for the foreseeable future, if not forever, um, which we've talked about, isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I don't necessarily see it as a good thing. Cause if you don't have guys who are motivated to bring better products to the table for a lower price for the consumers, that's going to cause a problem. And, and Illinois cannot sustain an $80 per eighth of an ounce market forever. That's just too expensive. Missouri's going to have a market going on soon. And I'm sure, you know, if their prices are more reasonable, people will do the reverse. Everybody's coming to Illinois now. People will reverse and go to Missouri. And that's just one of the things that I think tends to get overlooked. And I feel bad that a lot of these smaller people with uh, different ideas and things like that just aren't going to get an opportunity just simply because in these days they're not big enough. They don't have the money and they can't compete. And it, I, I think that as an industry, we miss out on the creativity and the uniqueness that some of these people bring to the table that gets lost when it's all being mass produced. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, look, every industry goes through its doldrums. And I think right now, you know, we're, we're going through it. It's still an amazing industry. It's still an industry you really want to be a part of. It's still something you want to do every day. And and uh, make sure you're, you're sort of accelerating where it's going to come out of this. But, you know, e even the best things in life have have their bad moments, which reminds me a lot of this dead show we're listening to from 92088, which is, you know, even in the middle of a great first set, you can have a dog. And, uh, you know, sometimes the boys just don't get it right. And, you know, so right now I, I'd say that we're uh, we're kind of sitting in the Louis Louis period of, um, <laughs> of, of the canvas industry. And what I mean by that is, you know, certain songs that Grateful Dead probably should have never tried to play. And if I were to pick one of them, uh, I'd say uh, the Louie Louie from 92088. As much as I love to think back fondly on my first show, you shake your head going, what the hell were you doing with this one? So I don't know if you've ever listened to it before, but, you know, Dan, maybe queue up a little bit of the uh, the Louie Louie for, for, uh, for us to listen to. And we'll talk about it on the other side. Think about that one. <laughs> that was bad. Uh, it, it, you know, look, this was a period of time, you know, when the dead were, 
you know, Brett was a, a force, a positive force for them. And they were bringing in all sorts of songs. This was right around the same time. I think they were covering, I fought the law, uh, the clash tune. And, uh, but the problem with this song is two, number one, this is traditionally an upbeat tune that gets people up and dancing is in the blues brothers and stuff like that. Right. They were playing it in typical dead style where they were practically daring you to you know, not fall asleep while they were playing it. The second problem that you have already previously noted is that nobody knows the damn words to this song anyway, let alone Brent Midland. And God love him for, you know, breaking out all sorts of tunes. I think he bit off a little bit too much with this one and wasn't sure what to do with it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I, I think, I think first of all, as I said earlier, when we were talking about this, you know, before the show started, it's a hard song to begin with because nobody knows what the hell the Kingsmen were saying when they actually wrote it. So it's uh, it's not like you're taking a, an easy song to cover and just you know sort of jump into it. It's taking a song that's already really difficult to cover. And I think the only person that's done it successfully is maybe like Belushi and Animal House. Uh, you know, the thing gave it a stab. But uh, you know, everything else I've ever seen. I, I by the way, the only song I've ever sung on stage in a band was uh, was Louie Louie in uh, I think ninth grade of boarding school, and I can tell you that that sucked. So that's. <laughs> you know, I don't think anyone can, can do it because you're, you're sitting there kind of making up words as you go along, hoping you've got it until you get to the chorus. Uh, but, you know, this is a particularly bad version. And by the way, I Fought the Law wasn't a, a Clash tune. It was the Crickets that initially played it. I think in 1960 was uh, their tune. The Clash covered it, you know, 12 years later, but I think everyone's covered it. The Green Day's covered it. Like, it's been covered by everyone. No, I I agree with that. And I figured if, since I knew with the Clash, I could throw them out. You would correct me. So that was good. That was teamwork there. Uh, I got the conversation started. You filled in the blanks. Yeah, it, look, the dead can't hit home runs every time out. Nobody can hit home runs every time out, even the cannabis industry. But here's the thing. Immediately bounced back, as you can attest, because you were there for the rest of the show. So they had a low moment, and they didn't let them stop them. My question is, is the cannabis industry going to be able to pull itself out of this and really present itself you know, face forward to the public in a way that's going to make it work the way you and I would like to see it work? Yeah, I mean, look, we're getting we're getting closer. There's for the first time ever, the prevailing belief, I think, is that safe banking is going through. I think the prevailing belief is going to happen during the lame duck session this year, even if the midterms, you know, uh, turn out differently than everyone expects. I don't think anyone knows. I don't think we're expecting a red wave anymore. I don't think we're expecting a blue wave either. No matter how it turns out, I think right now that everything I'm seeing is that this is going through. I got, I got a picture of my good buddy, Chris Crane, formerly president of Forefront. Um, with Corey Booker yesterday in D.C., they're uh, there for the NCAA, NCIA um, cannabis days, the lobbying days. Uh, so it was also the board meetings for NCIA. But Corey was down there meeting with those guys, and the word was that you know they're they're ready to go. You know, Cowan put out a report this morning that you know said there's only really two things that they see that can derail this, and one is that if, if the Dems do so much better in the midterms that they think, okay, now we can pass through more sweeping, broader legislation. Let's put it on the uh, the table. You know, let's wait till the next session. That's one. And then the only other thing they see that could derail it is, is some like cataclysmic event happens, like a hurricane or something like that, that just takes the focus off campus and just gets like swept under the rug because something else becomes like immediate forward, like first priority. But other than that, it appears that, you know, this is probably going to be tacked onto something, you know, probably not the Defense Authorization Act, but every bigger campus company that I was speaking to last week was saying that they really think that's the, the major catalyst for change. And half the bankers I spoke to, it was about 50-50. Half the bankers said, yeah, it's going to change what our shop is able to do. Other ones said, you know, no, it's not. And federal legalization is the only thing that's going to do that. You know, it'll give us some comfort, but we still can't get you know, our compliance team to move. 
But it, look, if if thirty percent of the banks open up and start providing leverage, and thirty percent of the banks, you know, start you know figuring out ways to uh, to be better providers to uh, to these clients, it's going to force all the other banks to come to the table. So at a certain point, all you need is you know a portion of the business to uh, to start opening up. But you know, for the retail investor, it certainly gets them excited about the space again. It certainly gets you know some institutional involvement. So I think we're close. You know. So, you know, do I think they can come out of this the way that the dead came out of Louie Louie and jump back into some better tunes? Yeah, I, I think they can. But the other thing I'll say, Larry, is that I, I think the Deadhead Cannabis Show has shown that, you know, we certainly are still finger on the pulse because there's a lot of people you and I have seen get washed out of this space. They came into the space, they lasted a year or two, they're gone. But no less than four of our, our guests, our former guests from the show, were at the conference this week that I actually got to see and say hello to. So I want to give shout-outs to former guys that we, we've had on this show, going as far back as episode 87 when uh, when Brian Fields came on to talk about his business. And we both saw, or you saw Mark Ross. I got some texts from him, but Mark Ross from um, from Vicente Cedarburg Strategies uh, from Denver was out there. And then uh, my buddy Tim Seymour from CNBC was uh, was out there taking meetings. And then Mark Passerini, who we had on to talk about the Michigan Hash Bash a couple years ago, was out there too. So... I think at least we've got a finger on the pulse of, you know, who it is that's uh, staying with the industry, and that's a good thing. So maybe maybe the, the key to this industry is come on our show, talk about the space, and you'll be there for the next couple of years. Well, I would certainly like to think so. You know, I unfortunately uh, did not have a chance to talk to Brian or uh, Tim I did talk to Mark Ross and Mark uh, Pastorini, and anytime I talk to either of those guys, I come away much more optimistic uh, about where things are going because they both have not just a lot of optimism, but a lot of success behind them. So, you know, when you talk to somebody who's actually had success in the industry and, you know, they see some positive signs down the road, that gives me hope. And, and look, you know, I, I think maybe it's just nothing more than it wears you down after a while, right? You're just trying to move beyond and really get into, let's, can we just stop worrying about what it takes to set up and actually operate for a little while and give everyone a chance to see what they can do with this. And, you know, we'll see where it goes. I, 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 I hear everything you say, but I'm going to quote one of my favorite people, the, uh, the great Rob Hunt, who says, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> yes, the, uh, the, the, the cynic in me always, always remains. But again, I'll, I'll refer on this one. Back to my prior statement. So all you out there listening, if you want to be successful in the cannabis industry, you should probably come on our show. And that's the, uh, that's the key. More importantly, if you want to be really successful in the cannabis industry, you should probably listen to our show and, uh, and, and, and do it every week and tell your friends to do the same because, you know, they'll probably give you the knowledge base that you need to really make a go at this industry when it's really difficult out there. So if, if, if you can hang in this thing as long as we have, then, you know, maybe maybe you just want to come on just to, to listen, a little bit of osmosis of, of what's happening out there in the space. We'll rub off so the next time you show up at a cannabis conference. You can say, oh, yeah, of course I know what's going on because I listen to Larry Michigan and Rob Hunt religiously. This is true. Look, statistics don't lie. That's right. Exactly. 5% of our guests are still there. Uh, I should say 5% of the last 80 shows we've done are, are, are you know, right, represented. So if you actually take away the guests we haven't had, uh, shows we haven't had guests, we're probably batting at least 15 or 20%. You know, it's a, the ratio, it's, it, it just gets better and better. If I carve out, like, you know, let's carve weekends out, let's, let's t- t- track that, we're probably hitting 80 or 90%. So it's, it's hard to say, but, you know, uh, it, it's largely attributable 
to uh, to, to the great quality of uh, of content and programming that we get out of uh, our our friends at Pod Connects and all the rest of the shows that, that Dan Humiston produces that shares the world the um, the 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 broader cannabis space and all the things that you can learn as you're facing off against this industry. And let's not forget our other brothers and sisters in the Pod Connects network, which keeps growing by the day. Every time I turn around, I'm getting another email from Dan with yet another new show uh, that has come over and joined his network. So I, you know, I think it, 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 there's twofold here. It's not just being on the Deadhead Cannabis Show. It's getting onto this Pod Connects network and, uh, you know, really being able to make a name for yourself. And look, I, I, you know, I can't speak for Rob, but I don't think you'll disagree that, you know, not only is this an effective way to get your name out there, but how the hell can you have any more fun doing it? I look forward to it every week. It's the thing that, you know, labor of love, all the rest of the work that I do, it's actually real, you know, substantive hard work in the space. At least once in a, once a week, I get this reprieve of, you know, putting on my headphones and throwing on the microphone and getting to talk about what I've learned this past week, while at the same time getting to listen to a lot of great music. So maybe we jump back into some other great music and just kind of keep this thing rolling through. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to this entire show, but well, I think let's just kind of go through the whole thing, right? As I said, this was it was a, a nine night run, right? So when you do a nine night run, the only group I can think of that's done you know more runs than that at the Garden is when Fish did the Baker's Dozen. You know, you've had guys that have set up like um, uh, residences. Here, what one quick note on that because. Um Right before we went on the air today and we started taping, I was listening to uh, Today in Grateful Dead History with David Lemieux. And he was reaching back to uh, one of the shows at the Garden. One of the first times they went, the first time when they did a five show run, which is either 87 or 88, I think. And he was saying about how, at the time, how amazing that was to be to great for any band to do a five-night run, and especially at a place like the Garden. And, of course, the Dead would go on, he said, you know, to do longer runs and other bands who would do, like, 13 nights in a row, you know. But it was interesting because that was definitely, a, you know, throwing a little shade at fish, I thought. Yeah, they, you know, hey, 13 nights. And it's not just the 13 nights. It's not repeating any tunes. And I bet in that five-night run you'll find a number of repeated tunes. Yeah, and there's definitely um, repeated tunes in this one. And I can tell you that because, uh, again, being a 16-year-old kid that was geeking out so hard about going to see my first show, I actually got the Dupree's Diamond News um, newsletters after that, and I wrote down every single set list from all nine nights and had them posted to my wall for, I think, the next three years. And, uh, and I can tell you exactly how many times they played each song. So there's you know, at, least, at least a handful of repeats by like night four or five, uh, and they probably almost repeated everything by, by the ninth night. But, uh, but this was kind of right smack dab in the middle of it. And I'll tell you, this night happened to be, and a lot of kids in Westchester County will tell you this is their first Grateful Dead show as well. And the reason being is even though it was a Tuesday night show, uh, it was because parent-teacher conferences for Westchester schools were on Wednesday of that week, which meant none of us had school. So we, uh, we all kind of snuck out what would normally be you know a weekday night and you're home in bed by 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock. Well, in this particular case, I think I've told the story before. I snuck off and told my parents I was going to my buddy Adam's house, and he told his parents he's going to my house. So we went down and jumped on the train at Metro North. I'd spare changed all day in the cafeteria that day and had 16 bucks in my pocket, and I was able to buy a ticket for like 12. So I think it was uh, enough to buy a ticket and a tab of acid, and, uh, and, and off I went, only to get home, you know, tripping my face off of my parents waiting at the front door going, so you went to go see the Grateful Dead, did you? I'm like, yeah, I sure did. And uh, that didn't, didn't go over well, so they grounded me for, for a while, but I managed to sneak out again and see them again on Friday. And at that point, they realized there wasn't much they were going to be able to do as I wanted to go see the Grateful Dead. Um, but that was, uh, you know, the first one was truly sneaking off to the city, which was lucky enough as a Westchester kid. You know, I, I could be at uh, Grand Central Station in about 30 minutes, 
And then you have that walk from there to basically the Penn Station, which is where, you know, where Madison Square Garden is. And because it was a weeknight, tickets were cheap. You know, we were able to get tickets for, you know, sub 20 bucks because there's so many of them floating around on a night run. There wasn't pent up demand. And, uh, you know, the bus came by and I got on and that's where it all began. But uh, it was a, uh, it, it, it had some hot moments and, you know, things at the time I didn't realize were rare, you know, like a Louie Louie, which, you know, like doesn't happen too often. I got, you know, I got a morning due my first night, but also we talk about this a lot. Songs that are played in slots, they shouldn't. And they opened up the second set that night with a, uh, with a Bertha Cumberland, which is something you really don't expect to hear as, you know, kind of a, a second set opener slot. So, you know, Bertha, we've covered quite a bit, but we don't, we don't play Cumberland too much on this show. And, Cumberland's another really fun song, great fun lyrics. You know, it's one of those like great ones where I think uh, Hunter had fun with it with like, you know, the little Ben clock and the whole idea of, uh, of, of you know, I think it's a song based in, in West Virginia about working in a coal mine and, you know, working for five bucks a day. And if, as soon as you don't want to work there anymore and someone else is ready to take your place and just singing the blues about how bad it sucks to work there, but really the only choice you have is to do it, right? So, you know, Cumberland was always one of my favorite sort of up-tempo songs, usually in the first set, uh, that I'd always look forward to if, uh, if they were going to play it. But, uh, but maybe we play a little bit of that Cumberland dance. Yeah, that's a great tune. That's a great tune. I really like that tune a lot. And what's strange about this is it's not that it's just not a second set tune. If it was the first set, it's not even a second tune in the first set. You know, Cumberland would usually be a tune that would show up somewhere, you know, fourth or fifth song, depending on whether Jerry or Bobby started. And, you know, I, I never saw it any earlier, you know, probably than the fourth or fifth song of the set. So, you know, that that's just great that they keeps people honest, you know, and, and we've talked about that as time went on, they started doing it less and less, um, you know, which was unfortunate because that was, that really was a lot of fun to, you know, when they would just all of a sudden confuse you with a completely backward set list. Yeah. I always put it like, you know, the same slot that Peggy would be or the same slot that Birdsong would be. It's, it's kind of where I pop, you know, expected to pop up, but it's, uh, as I said, you know, there's very few really up-tempo um, mid-set, mid-first set Jerry tunes. And uh, and Cumberland's one, so it's uh, you know if you got a Cumberland and then you got something like a uh, like a music never stopped to follow or something then like a deal to follow, then it was a great way to, to end for like just a really sort of high note to end the first set, but uh, but it was a good one. I agree, and and I like that song a lot. At my uh, the first law firm I ever worked at, which doesn't exist anymore, so I'll say the name anyway: Wildman, Harold Allen, and Dixon in downtown Chicago. We would have. Uh, you know, every couple of months, the whichever partner was in charge of the social stuff would say, oh, I got a few extra bucks. We'll all go over to such and such a bar after work and we'll hang out and there'll be drinks and food and whatever. And there'd always be a DJ. And I would always go in and ask the DJ, hey, do you have any Grateful Dead? And he'd always tell me, nah, no, I don't. One night a DJ said, yeah, somebody gave me a disc from the Grateful Dead, but it was still in the plastic. He hadn't even opened it yet. So he handed it to me and I opened it up and it was... um it was like it was it was one of the, the the live albums or compilation live albums that 
was floating around at that time. And looking at it, I had just seen the Grateful Dead not uh, too long before, and they had done a great Cumberland Blues. And I'd definitely been tripping, so I'm sure that played up the effect of it. But I love Cumberland, and when they really get into the jam, it's wonderful. So this guy starts playing, and there were a few other deadheads in the crowd, not many, but who we definitely picked up on it right away. But the funny thing was watching... Some of the other people in the firm, some of these guys I knew who were always giving me shit for going to the Grateful Dead, you know, and kind of immediately taking it as like a yeehaw, yeehaw, you know, good old kind of, you know, that kind of tune. And let's just all, you know, and I'm like, guys, you're missing the whole thing, but that's why you're never going to a dead show. So, um, you know, it was, uh, it was great. It's a great tune. I really like it. And it's fun to hear it. Yeah. And speaking of law firms, throwing little shindigs and, uh, you know, serving some food and some drinks. So I guess I've got to give a shout out to, uh, to my law firm as well, to Greenspoon Martyr for, uh, for having us over. They threw a really nice party in Chicago as well. And, has up to their new offices, so I'm still technically have counsel to the Greenspoon Martyr Law Firm, and once in a while I like to make an appearance and go by and say hello and check in with some of the guys I do some work with that I only get to see once or twice a year. But they had a, a great room uh, in the same building that you know their their new offices and Guggenheim's offices are in. And they had like you know Papa Shot in there and a bunch of other games and some uh, some great appetizers and cold beers. So. Uh, and Larry, you joined me for a little bit of that as well. So that was that was a fun way to uh, to, to finish up the conference yesterday afternoon. It was. Um, it, it was nice of you to to bring me along, um, which is why I behaved myself when I was there. No, it, it was it was fun. We had a very nice time. I got to meet I got to meet some interesting people. Always good when you bring a guest and they behave themselves. Yes, it was great. They the the, the folks at Greenspoon Martyr could not have been more hospitable. Um, they really put on a good show. And I'll tell you what really impressed me most about that was I had not been in their space that they've moved into there and where they basically have that entire building and the parties down in an atrium that the upper levels looked down on. And the first thing that I saw was the pool table, but they also had a putting green. They had a Papa shot basketball thing. I'm like, if I'm an attorney there, man, I'm spending half my day down there unless the partners are upstairs looking down, keeping track. Well, it made you think there's like a, like a, you would have thought you were in Palo Alto or in some, you know, sort of tech startup with all the different games and fun stuff they had. So it's a, uh... Maybe a new work environment to get people to come back to the office. You got to make things a little bit more interesting these days. Absolutely. But uh, but yeah, I mean, look, all that to say, I think I think you and I got to spend a lot of quality time together, and you know, we got to spend a lot of quality time with Dan. So it's really fun when you know. The, I don't think a lot of people out there realize that we all I mean, we say it every time. Larry's in Chicago. I'm I'm here in San Diego. Dan's out in in, uh, in Colorado. And it's rare that the three of us actually uh, get to hang out and, and do stuff together. But this is a great chance to. To shoot the shit around cannabis, talk some Grateful Dead, have, have some music, uh, have some dinner, see some music. So really, really fun week. And hopefully, um, if any of our listeners are ever at these things, look us up. Let us know if you're going. If you're going to MJ Biz, if you're going to something else, just stop by and say hello, or come over and have a drink. There's always a, you know, sort of a bar at these places after the other uh, meetings are done. But you know, pop over and say hello. And uh, if there's people that want to be a guest on this show, pop over and say hello. You know, if you if you love the Grateful Dead and you're in the canvas space and we don't know that and you've heard the show, I had a bunch of people come up to me and say, hey, I heard that episode with so-and-so. I heard like, I was like, oh, that's great. I had a guy come to me yesterday, last night and tell me that he'd um, read my LinkedIn article that I wrote like two years ago about, you know, the uh, hemp oil popping hot. And uh, he's like, oh, you're the guy that wrote that article about the DEA got it wrong. I was like, yeah, you read that? <laughs> you know, so you forget that sometimes, you know, the things that you do, that there are actually people out there that, uh, that tune in. So, you know, again, thanks to, to our audience for, for doing that. And uh, really, really fun week uh, hanging out with you guys. So a little, little nostalgia today of, uh, of, you know, getting to spend some time together. No, you know what? Look, it's always important for any group that works together. And it was nice to do that. 
And, uh, you know, it speaks well to the fact that we were able to have a nice dinner, go hear some great music right in the right in our wheelhouse. And uh, look, to me, that will always be the, the primary benefit of these conferences is an opportunity to see people and to reconnect and, to, you know, catch up with people and find out what's going on. You know, and in any industry, but especially in this industry, it's those, you know, that networking and those, you know, personal connections that I think a lot of times make the difference. Because as I tell people, this was an industry that for years was always based on who do I know the guy who sent me to you, right? You know, or sent you to me. Everybody's always looking over their shoulder. Everybody always wants to know. And just because the market is now turned, you know, into a, a, a basically a legal market. I think that for some people, that's just still a natural reaction to always want to know who they're dealing with, you know, and, and do I know you? Do I know you're really legit? Are you really interested in this industry kind of thing? And by showing up at these things and, you know, taking the time to, you know, press the flesh and talk to people, you build those relationships and that, that comfort level with one another. And in this industry, it's wonderful to see people who are really dedicated, you know, to the plant and really, uh, you know, who want to see good things come of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I can tell you that I'm still a little bit um, exhausted from uh, from being out there. I'm going to get a good night's sleep tonight and uh, get ready to get back into the office full-time tomorrow. But it's fun to uh, take the show today as soon as I – basically as soon as I got off the plane today, you know, right back into the studio to get to see you guys again. But we got a lot of fun shows coming up. We've got a lot of uh, fun guests today coming up. We've had a handful of people that approach us saying that they'd like to be on the show. So uh, I'm really excited over the next couple of weeks and what we're going to put out for you guys. But why don't we wind it up today with – a little bit more of 92088, and uh, you know we talk about a lot of the great covers the Grateful Dead do, and uh, Chuck Berry obviously was a big influence. You know, Promised Land was a was a big influence, and uh, you know the other big one for them that they didn't play too often was Johnny Be Good, and uh, when they did, it was much much like more of a rocker. I think you know, Around and Around was the third I think Chuck Berry tune that they played, which is you know a little too slow for me, but when you think of the classic Chuck Berry tune. You know, Johnny B. Good's got to be uh, pretty much tops of the list of, uh, of the thing that really you know, put him on the map. And uh, I always thought the Grateful Dead did an amazing version. And uh, they, uh, I think they encored with it uh, this night. I think it was a morning due to close the, uh, close the show and then a, a Johnny B. Good to come out as the encore. So um, before we fire that up, good to hang out with you guys one more time. And uh, looking forward to the next couple of weeks. And that's it for me from San Diego. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, it was fun to, to be with you guys. Uh, we do have some great shows coming up that I'm very excited about and some good live music that's going to be coming down the, the, the pike here pretty soon that we'll be talking about. And yeah, Johnny Be Good is always a great way to end any dead show uh, and, to add our, and, and to end our show. It's got, you know, probably the most recognizable guitar intro of any song in rock and roll, you know, to the point we even have Michael J. Fox doing it right and, uh, you know, Back to the Future. But when you're looking at it like that, I would just assume any day of the week here, uh, Jerry picking it away, and boy, does he do a good job. So thanks, everyone. Have a good week, and uh, enjoy your cannabis responsibly.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.